0: Welcome to The Herd, and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Uh, Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Amanda Radke. Thank you for joining us.
1: thanks for having me. I'm excited to be visiting with you today.
0: Perfect. Fifth generation ranching, is that right?
1: That's correct. My family and I raise uh, cattle in South Dakota, and our kids would be the sixth generation living on our ranch. On that property? Well, I've had family in the cattle business that long, but uh, technically four generations on this place here.
0: Only four. Gee, Uh, what's uh, the statistics about how much people end up moving around these days and four generations on, I mean, one generation in one place is probably um, remarkable these days for most of the time.
1: I, I laugh because I always intended to move to a big city somewhere and now I live the next house down from mom and dad's here we are. (laughs) Yeah,
0: well that's interesting. So first of all, um, forgive me, but how many times have you been to the Corn Palace?
1: (laughs) Yes, Mitchell, South Dakota, home of the world's only Corn Palace. So yeah, I probably take it for granted a little bit and it's not as exciting for me, but people travel from all around the world to see The Corn Palace, which I always tell people it's essentially a big gymnasium, but on the outside, uh, there's murals that are uh, paint by number. But with the paint is different varieties of corn and different colors of corn to make these really cool pictures. And there's new themes every year. And it is pretty neat.
0: Um, bird control, rodent control, is that an
1: issue? Well, it's also called the world's largest bird feeder for a reason, so. (laughs)
0: Outstanding. So whereabouts is Mitchell in South Dakota?
1: It's the southeast corner. So our largest town would be Sioux Falls, about an hour drive away.
0: And that's just off the Interstate 90, is that right?
1: Correct. Yeah, you know your way around here.
0: A little. Um, (laughs) So, but you're still, you're grassland at that point. I mean, that's the natural landscape of that region, right?
1: Yeah, we get a little more rain on this side of the state than on the western side of the river. That's the Missouri River. Uh, So we do have a lot more crop ground on this side of the state. And basically, if it doesn't have a slope, People are wanting to plow it up, but we're kind of the the oddballs, and we want to keep everything in grass and keep the cattle on the range, and so we'll do about anything in our power to keep keep some cover on the soil and and keep some ruminants out doing their thing.
0: Well, and and clearly it was grassland that's what got converted into cropland, and and that somehow doesn't gain as much. Interest as the conversion of forest into crop ground.
1: Um, right. <laughs> well, good. And no, good. It, it's really exciting that, or to me, I'm kind of a nerd like that. I really enjoy. Uh, Soil land management and and telling that story of how that beef cow can upcycle inedible cellulosic material like grass and corn stalks that they graze on and cover crops, and then they can convert it into nutrient-dense beef. To me, it's such a great environmental story that kind of gets lost with all the cow farts that are in the mainstream media today.
0: Indeed, um, and we've got to get better at getting that message to more people because too few people know it, um, but you said that you had wanted to leave the ranch and go live in the big city, so uh, what changed for you between the time you got to go to college, and and South Dakota State is where, what university?
1: Uh, Brookings, South Dakota, is South Dakota State University.
0: Okay, now my geography is failing me. What part of the state is Brookings?
1: So Brookings would be about 45 minutes north of Sioux Falls. So really wasn't too far from home, about an hour 45 for us to drive.
0: And Sioux Falls is pretty much on the border, isn't it?
1: Uh, Pretty close, about a half hour drive. And I talk okay. in hours, and I know that doesn't always make sense for people in the cities. Yeah. There, yeah, totally different metrics. So
0: <laughs> depends on the time of day, you know what takes you <laughs> five minutes. One,
1: traffic. yeah, slowing <laughs> us down. Just go. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, okay. So when you went off to Brookings, your plan was uh, when you went as an undergrad. What did you study?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, after I graduated from high school, I actually moved to Washington, D.C. for a summer. I was working for uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture as an intern. And that was really kind of what changed everything for me. At that point, I thought, I don't want to go back to the ranch. I want to see what big city life is like, maybe get involved in politics. And I moved into my dorm room at George Washington University and met my roommate for the summer and she was a vegetarian from New Jersey. And to say we were like polar opposites is an understatement um, because she had seen this YouTube video uh, that depicted animal abuse and she had decided to give up meat because she thought that was the norm and not, you know, a terrible exception to the rule. And so that was really an aha moment for me. Uh, i had always been a good communicator, good writer and speaker. And I thought, you know, I need to go back to the ranch. I need to stay involved in agriculture. And I want to serve as a voice to tell our story because uh, a lot of people have a misunderstanding about who we are in agriculture and what we do to get beef from the pasture to the plate.
0: Okay, so you came back from your summer then and started on a career of... Agricultural communications, is that right?
1: Correct. Yep. And I will say my roommate was eating beef by the end of the summer too. So it was a success wow. story.
0: <laughs> Good on you. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. It doesn't
1: always go so, that way, of course, but <laughs> you uh, got to try.
0: Indeed. Um, and of course, I really don't want to try to, uh, I want to make sure that people have information. So that they can make informed decisions and i think too much is based on misinformation and so Yeah. yeah um and and a lot of it is how many how many people from the ranching community had your roommate ever met before
1: I think I was the first one ever. So, And and that's the thing that I discovered over the course of that summer is whether you live in a big urban area and you have a Starbucks in every corner, or you live like me and the closest house is a half mile away, we all have a lot of shared values when it comes to going to the grocery store and selecting the foods that we want to eat. Um, So those shared values are taste, budget, nutrition, food safety, environmental stewardship and animal welfare. And the great news is that those are things that cattlemen and women also care about when they're raising the beef on our ranches. And so if we can connect with people on those shared values, usually we can find, you know, some common ground or some middle ground to have, you know, really meaningful conversations about food and, and how it's grown in this country.
0: In, indeed. Um, one of one of the comments is, "I feed this to my family."
1: Absolutely, uh, and is, if I feel good feeding it to my kids, you know that's that's probably the best endorsement I can give, other than you know, trust me, I'm I I do this for a living. No, trust me, I'm a mom, and and I feel good about giving it to my kids.
0: Absolutely. Um, so you said five generations in the beef industry. That the industry's changed a little bit over even one generation, Um, what, what if you, so you've gotten to know your grandparents, right? Mm -hmm. Are they still, or do you still have them
1: or? Uh, Three of the four are still around, yep.
0: Great. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe if we think about what were the, the, what the focus was in your grandparents breeding programs versus what it is today or even you could go grandparents parents and yours because it does it has changed even mm-hmm. over shorter time periods
1: yeah Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot that, you know, grandpa got right in trying to select cattle that matched the environment and, you know, did well in on this type of range and with the crops that are grown locally. And now over time, we've just gotten more sophisticated with that same goal, whether it's using, you know, pedigree and EPDs to, which is, you know, their performance numbers to try to enhance efficiencies or reproductive uh, efficacy or uh, fertility or milk and all of these different traits that we're selecting for. And now we can even use genomic data and and DNA testing to just enhance uh, those production goals even better and really dial in on certain traits Uh, that we're trying to improve upon. Uh, So an example of that is we raise limousine cattle. Uh, Limousine tend to be leaner, uh, more feed efficient, and higher red meat yielding. So you get a big old, you know, 12 to 16 inch ribeye on the plate, but maybe not as much marbling. And so, this new generation of limousine, we're really focusing on improving marbling for um, a better flavor profile, more more fat to those cattle. Uh, but we want to do so in a way that we don't reduce the overall yield and 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 the feed efficiency in that regard. And so, it's really a science and an art, and you're just constantly learning to improve and and have a great tasting beef eating experience every time.
0: Mm. And and you think about um, decisions that had to get made before about which bulls to use or which cows to keep or which heifers to keep and, and have them remain in the herd. And now there are tools that maybe increase the odds of making the right decision. Um, <laughs>
1: like to think so yes
0: <laughs> indeed we'd like to think so um so you let's see you left for college is it am i right at 2005 is that about right
1: 2006 to graduated from high school and i uh, was at sdsu and graduated in 2009 and moved back to the ranch
0: um and but you also did some intern work at NCBA is that correct or
1: yep so i, I spent some time with ncba i also lived in minneapolis for a summer uh, as an intern for beef magazine which is kind of how i got my my ongoing gig with them where i write you know every week at beefmagazine.com um and so yeah i did tried a lot of things and exposed myself to a lot of different segments of the beef industry to try to figure out where my skill sets you know fit best and, and being able to go home and be a freelance writer, but be involved in the, the cattle ranch was really kind of the sweet spot for me and, and so it's been a blessing to be able to work from home and, and write about what I'm passionate about and, and also raise my family here on the ranch.
0: And your ranch, your segment of the beef industry, And again, I twitch every time I say that because there is no single beef industry. There are various segments, and then those segments can look different depending on what part of the country you're in. But you're primarily a cow-calf operation, but a a certain amount is, um, I don't know, is seed stock the right word?
1: Yeah. So we're cow-calf. So right now we're calving and getting new babies here on the ranch. Uh, We raise purebred cattle. So that would put us in the seed stock industry. So we sell uh, purebred registered uh, bulls and heifers to people that are also, you know, raising cattle and wanting to add to their own herds and genetics that way. And then with the recent uh, pandemic and shortages at the at the grocery store, we've also started retaining uh, more feeder calves to feed out and sell uh, beef quarters and halves locally. So we've always done that just for family and friends, mm-hmm. but we see a huge growing demand for that. And so we're going to enter into the beef marketing world a little bit and, and kind of take control of our, our price and, and our business truly from the baby calf all the way to the retail side
0: yeah it's interesting to think about the opportunities that are being afforded in the midst of this new shifting sort of market and and reality with technology um, you but what's this what's this about exta extemp, extemporaneous? I can hardly say it speaking oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, When I was in college, I did a lot of speaking contests, and one of them that I did Uh, In FFA was called the extemporaneous speaking, where you draw a topic out of a hat, three topics, and you'd get 30 minutes to prepare a speech. And so I won national extemporaneous uh, public speaking as a, my last year in FFA but I will say I probably lucked out because in the final round, I drew a topic about beef cattle. And so <laughs> it almost felt like cheating or or I guess God had my back because I was like, I got this. I know what I'm talking about. And uh, some topics you draw out of the hat and you're like, oh, man, I wouldn't know the first thing about this. And so, yes, I got very lucky that and that was kind of a, a fun way to finish uh, my FFA days as a kid. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you get points off if you can't pronounce the topic? Is that...?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You could just go with like then you sound like you're just talking the lingo and you don't have to spit out the phone.
0: Okay, good. Thank you for that tip. Um, And also there was this thing about meat judging. Um, What would describe meat judging to someone that's never come that close to it before?
1: Sure. So I joined the collegiate meats judging team. So that's where I met my husband, Tyler. So we always joke, we fell in love in a packing plant or a meat cooler looking at ribeyes. It's like the start of every romantic comedy, right? (laughs) (laughs) But we would essentially uh, judge the carcasses for their quality. so marbling, uh, fat cover, size of the ribeye, um, and everything kind of had points related to it. So you'd evaluate different carcasses and look for the one that was most, you know, prime for the retail customer. And then you'd write reasons uh, to explain why you placed the class that way. And yeah, it was kind of fun to see, you know, as a farm kid that grew up in the cattle business. I really learned a lot on that side of the industry, working in the meat lab and seeing how animals were processed and then really studying the carcass quality and and the merits of each cut of beef. Uh, But needless to say, when my husband and I go out to eat at steakhouses. We're probably the biggest critics <laughs> around. So it's, it's hard to impress a cattleman, much less a former meats judge. <laughs>
0: uh, I, I could tell you the story about when the uh, the American Fortune Grassland Council's board went out to dinner and the waiter brought us what we had ordered, which was ribeyes, only these weren't ribeyes. And he said, oh yeah, they are. We're like, no, they're not. <laughs> I, I don't. I know that the cook told you they were, but somebody's lying to you. Um, <laughs> but that process that you describe is essentially what goes on in commercial facilities by mm-hmm. inspectors who are doing the same thing um, and grading.
1: Absolutely. Yep. So that's why, um, you know, when you look at the steak and you see things like USDA, prime, choice, select, that's what we were learning to do um, on the meat judging team. And then we also did it with hogs and and lamb as well.
0: Mm, three of my basic food groups. Um, pretty much. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you explain you describe described that experience right out of high school. But are there other experiences that as an ag um, speaker that have taught you things about building bridges and, and how not, uh, not only the need to do it better, but how to do it better?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm just doing it the last, Oh, 15 years now and trying to, debunk these myths and talk about what we do and, and try to take, you know, the fact that we've been demonized uh, in the media and just trying to put a face back to who farmers and ranchers are. It's, there's been a lot of ups and downs and good experiences and bad experiences. Um, But I've definitely learned in addition to focusing on those, those core values that we all share uh, that my default mode is always to be kind and factual. Uh, so I want to be a transparent and authentic and accurate resource for people to come ask questions about meat and, and particularly the beef industry. Um, and I always want to be kind. Uh, if you spend any time on social media these days, you know that's not always the case. And so you can really get into the weeds with activists and trolls and you know people that really want to deflect you know, from your message or silence you from speaking out. And so when I default to being kind and factual, I hope just the contrast of, of comments is evident. And, and I always just joke that guy needs a little beach well from a steak because he's pretty angry. So, and I'm pretty happy. So I always say beef is my, my happy pill. And and that's what I try to stick with. And And you're never going to regret just choosing to be, you know, the kind person on the internet. So that's kind of what I've learned probably the hard way, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my default.
0: Are there resources that you rely on or that you, and, or that you direct people toward to find out more information?
1: Sure. Uh, So my blog at beefmagazine.com, I focus a lot on consumer trends and egg policies and things that, in particular producers should be aware of and how we could maybe respond to you know a negative article that's out there or something that they need to be aware of that might impact what they do back home on the ranch uh, but anyone who loves beef could use that as a, a resource as well i know there's a lot of people in this community that are very heavily invested in making sure ribeyes stay in the meat case and are affordable and available to us so we can feel good and and enjoy a diet that, you know, makes us feel our best. Uh, so that would be one way I'd direct people to. Um, also, we have a lot of uh, free websites that are have tons of information, like Beef It's What's for Dinner. Uh, there's also a checkoff-funded program called the Masters of Beef Advocacy that kind of gives people the talking points and the tools they need to go out and share beef messages. Uh, but I really have to commend you know, the low carb, the carnivore, the the meat enthusiasts out there, because I think they're almost doing a better job than us cowboys are in talking about beef and sharing the nutritional benefits and the health benefits of our products and really being strong advocates. And they're, they're the consumers, they're the customers that we're trying to reach. And yet they're huge champions for what we do back home on the ranch. And so I really appreciate those strong voices that are really kind of going viral and gaining thousands of followers, and it's it's just really awesome to see.
0: I think one thing I might add would be uh, Meet Myth Crushers yeah. as um, a document that they seem to keep fairly current um, and um, covers a lot of topics. Uh, from the American Meat Institute. I think there's also, uh, Frederick Leroy has a dynamic white paper um, that looks at the health and environment and ethical issues around meat consumption. And so it's incredibly current with links to research. So that would be another one. I'll put links in the show notes. Um, Because I agree, we, we just wanna make information available and do it in a way that people watching our interactions don't get turned off by how we interact with people. Um, okay. And so this, this I remember a conversation that we had some years ago, you know, right. BC before COVID, um, <laughs> where we were talking about um, trying to shift or influence marketing efforts by beef, other animal source food industries, um, to represent or incorporate or at least put forth as an alternative the therapeutic carbohydrate reduction message call it whatever you want to keto low carb high fat whatever um and i don't i think it was in that conversation that i became aware that the promotional materials that are created by for example, beef checkoff dollars have to be approved by USDA review.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I think you and I were the. I think you're the one that taught me that little nugget. So let's one describe what the beef checkoff is,
1: sure.
0: and then explain, uh, we could explore the potential for um, conflict of interest in terms of what marketing message you might be able to put out.
1: Yeah. Uh, So for those who aren't familiar, the beef checkoff is a dollar assessment. uh, So per head. So every beef animal I would sell I'd pay a dollar tax, essentially, uh, that gets sent. And, and is the oversight is with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, we have state beef councils, and we also have a national beef council. Uh, so in South Dakota, we retain 50 cents of that dollar for promotions, and 50 cents of that dollar goes to the national. And that's where you see things like the iconic beef, it's what's for dinner commercial come out, or, you know, maybe beef ambassadors out promoting beef at different events. Uh, and um, for for us personally in South Dakota, what I really value about the checkoff is we send a lot of our dollars here in South Dakota where cattle outnumber people four to one and and we love beef here, but we're sending a lot of our dollars to the Northeast Beef Promotion Initiative, which is on the East Coast, you know, we're reaching consumers there, like in New York City or Boston, and and we're teaching them about where beef comes from. And so it's it's very valuable in that way. Um, however, there's a lot of people in cattle country that would criticize the checkoff for various reasons. Uh, but probably the largest critique I would have of the checkoff is the fact that it's tied to uh, the government, and uh, and that the government is basing what we can say about beef. On USDA's uh, dietary guidelines for Americans, which of course, for the last 40 years, um, has gone further and further away from animal fats and proteins. And so when we refer to beef and check off funded advertisements, it has to be lean beef or, you know, it has to focus on cuts like the sirloin that would, you know, fit the parameters of what a good serving of beef is. And, uh, and so it gets a little tricky to try to fit into that. Government-approved uh, speech and and yet tried to promote the merits of beef, which on the flip side, for those of us that aren't scared of fat and really thrive on, you know, a fatty cut of beef, uh, that's kind of a whole different message and ball game that maybe we can't tap into through checkoff-funded promotions.
0: Um, that was a revelation to me. That just kind of set everything. It's like okay. <laughs> <laughs> um the i know that you follow a diet that is heavy if not exclusively animal source food is that correct
1: that's correct yes and How i've long? seen i've seen amazing benefits from it too that i yeah i i wasn't always willing to share about because it was considered weird (laughs) and it still is weird. Uh, but now I realized so many people benefit from it and it's really becoming more and more mainstream that I'm finally like, Oh, what do I care if people, you know, no, I don't eat a salad (laughs) (laughs) or I don't eat a donut. If I feel good, I have energy and yeah, why not scream it from the rooftops?
0: How long have you been following that way of life?
1: Uh, Since 2013, Uh, so my story, I come from a long uh, lifetime of weight loss or weight gain struggles. Um, Infertility was the big thing that kind of led me to this diet. We couldn't get pregnant for close to three years. I went on a zero carb carnivorous diet, eating as much hamburger as I wanted And, uh, within three months I was pregnant. And so it, I had, we had three kids very easily after that. I've had three healthy pregnancies eating that way. Uh, I no longer have to worry about constantly gaining weight or fighting cravings or binge eating. And it's really just been a freeing uh, choice for me. And, and now it's almost just, it's second nature. I don't think about it. I just eat meat and go on with my day and, and feel fantastic.
0: So eating hamburger gets you pregnant? Is that, is that <laughs> Apparently. what
1: <you're> <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It worked for me and it's worked for several others that I know of that, you know, had their family dreams come true all because they really leaned into a diet that was rich in animal fats and proteins and it just kind of reset their hormones and got things, you know, going in the right direction. And so, yeah, I couldn't be more grateful uh, for the folks that really early on. Uh, walked me through that. So like Charles Washington and Kelly Hogan, and uh, they really gave me the confidence to say, yeah, just eat the hamburger. You're not going to gain weight. You're not going to, you know, you're going to feel good. And I did. I mean, I lost, I had depressed feelings. I just wasn't, had no energy. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I've really freed myself from a lot of health woes uh, that uh, I I just don't worry about it anymore. I, I was on thyroid medicine. I was pre-diabetic and my doctor wanted to put me on metformin. I mean, I was really in tough shape and within a few months, total flip. And now people ask me, do you ever sleep because you have so much energy? And so I really attribute that to, to eating meat and, and just listening to my body and realizing that it was responding really well to, to steak and burgers.
0: <laughs> well, forgive me, but All of that, you were how
1: old? Uh, In my early 20s. Yeah, Yeah. early 20s. Yeah, I feel better now than I did at 21. Yep, and I'm 33, I think.
0: (laughs) So at some point in the conversation about sustainability, we've got to pay attention to the quality of life of human beings. And we've got to pay attention to the burden on society of... The healthcare, and at some point we can even look at the environmental footprint of the healthcare industry, um, yeah. and and try to get all that weighed against someone who's maintaining grassland in its natural state and producing this nutrient dense, natural food, an ancestral food. That has this ability to so dramatically affect the course of a young person's life, let alone an old fart like me. I just, I I struggle with knowing how to express that adequately to people.
1: It's hard when you're not measuring, you know, apples to apples. So often we're measuring apples to oranges or only looking at one segment. But as you were saying all that, I realized, you know, I'm probably am pretty climate friendly because the beef is born here. It's raised here. It's fattened here. And the furthest it goes down the road is is 10 miles to go be harvested. And then it comes right back to my freezer and then we eat it and there's no waste. So really, I'm probably as green as they come, I, I suppose. (laughs)
0: <laughs> You're probably not connected to a municipal sewer system, right?
1: <laughs> I do not think so, no. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, so so we're pretty close to a closed system, but um, okay. And as, as you said, now you feel more comfortable talking about this within your tribe of mm-hmm. the, yeah. the, but it, it wasn't always so, as I recall oh. a conversation. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I remember early conversations and I was like, oh no, I better not talk about that because that's it's so taboo or so weird and and you know, the unfortunate reality is even those of us in the beef industry we're being given the same medical advice as everyone else. So even though we have the most nutrient-dense food on the planet that we're raising and putting into our freezers, there's still that mentality that, oh, I better only eat a small serving and I better fill my plate with everything else. And I better feel guilty about it. And, you know, every time you go to the doctor, you're told to, cut back on red meat and, and uh, focus on fruits and veggies. And so we're getting that same information that everyone else is. And, and so the sad reality is, is a lot of people, even in the beef industry, maybe don't realize what a super food they're actually raising because they've been indoctrinated the same way as everyone else. And if we just really leaned in to what we're doing and what we're raising, the health benefits are incredible and and pretty widespread and, and heavily documented now by thousands of people who have seen incredible health transformations simply by going against the grain and eating the way our ancestors used to.
0: And my experience going to a variety of conferences across this country and in other countries is when I look at the agricultural audiences that show up, whatever statistics you want to cite about the health of the general public, the farming community reflects those. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so not, not only are we not valuing our own pro- the product of our efforts as if I'm actually engaged in it, I support the industry, I'm not. But... Um, to to not realize that you're producing something that I would argue could improve your or correct your health. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's something I'm getting from uh, Gary Taubes' latest book, and apparently he got it from somebody else. The difference between improving and correcting health okay. that, you know you're you're correcting the symptoms of hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistance, whether it be infertility or obesity or any of the other metabolic derangements. Um, And then on top of that, I think of politics and I think of funding and I think of all these things that would be shifted dramatically if people came to understand that just beef to focus on one but any of the animal source food production is essential to sustainable food systems and that ruminants are essential to the maintenance and enhancement of our natural lands as well mm-hmm. as thoroughly integrated into cropping systems I mean you mentioned the use of of, of crop residues mm-hmm. in so that would be things like grazing corn stover or stubble in fields or mm-hmm. people growing cover crops after the corn is harvested or whatever the crop is harvested, but then you could graze that um, mm-hmm. as, as a rotational um, practice. And that's just in North America. We've got a world to think of where mm-hmm. ruminant animal agriculture is essential and um, I'm one of my goals is to get people to con- to to think about this myth of too much animal source food in the diet, and what exactly yeah. do you think that means, and what evidence do you think that's based on? And
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and on- I think it's important to remind people that a large portion of the world. Is covered by land that is too steep or arid or rocky for modernizing or farming. So you couldn't put an apartment complex on it. You couldn't plow it up to grow plants or grow, you know, ingredients for your salad. Uh, so it would either sit like a desert, a deserted wasteland, uh, or it can be used by ruminant animals. And when we strategically place ruminants and on the range, we see that the cattle aerate the soil with their hooves. They reduce the dead brush and encourage new growth to reduce the spread of wildfires. They fertilize it naturally with their manure. They're also part of the water cycle. Think people think that the cow just drinks the water and it's gone forever, but it's all part of this water cycle. And so, and not to mention, when we keep the land in grass, we're also providing an abundant wildlife habitat as well for all the different other creatures that we have roaming our ranch and so if you just pick up a plow and 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 go right through it you lose all of those amazing benefits and again if they just sit I I think there's this notion that if we just don't touch the land we don't log it we don't graze it we don't responsibly manage the resources uh that it will be pristine and perfect But that's when you get, you know, dead timber and dead grass and these crazy huge wildfires that consume, you know, acres and acres of land. And so we need ranchers on the land and we need responsible stewards to be involved in range management and so yeah it's something I'm very passionate about and I wish people could see more of that but unfortunately that piece of the puzzle has become highly politicized and you know used uh as a punching bag I guess for brownie points you know by environmentalists uh, who are actually in my opinion hurting the environment when you know cattle ranchers could be a huge part of the equation for a healthier planet.
0: Um, We could add Uh, pollinating insects uh, from natural grasslands. Um, I actually saw a video recently where uh, municipalities are facing pressure because they have to upgrade their wastewater treatment facilities. And so what they're now able to do in this one area um, is get credits from farmers who are practicing good grassland management because they're reducing the phosphorus loading in the waters. And the municipalities can then get approval to achieve a a level of reduction that's economic without going all the way to what they're, you know, supposed to on their own. They can then apply those credits from agriculture against their municipal needs. Okay. and and so now we're getting that in addition to lots of other conversations about the contribution of agriculture beyond the commodity that then enters and and okay. that's that's long overdue how it will all work out we'll see but it's it's interesting because clearly grassland agriculture well managed is key to watershed health and function key to surface water quality key to as you said all these other ecosystem services that society values but not yet economically they 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 haven't gotten to that stage yet they they so
1: right right well and Um, i think you know if this topic is people are interested in, they might, I know you're, you're having Gary Tobbs come on and he's like high level expert in this. uh, But I write children's books. And if people are interested in uh, introducing these concepts to their little kids, I recently released a new book called The Soil Quilt, which talks about how the land is a blanket for our planet and how uh, farmers and ranchers play a role by doing certain practices to improve that soil health. And so people can check it out at amandaradke.com. And it's it's kind of a fun, cute little book geared for second and third graders, but it can start those conversations at a young age. Uh, because unfortunately in schools today, the only message kids are receiving is meat, meat is bad for you and bad for the planet. And so my goal is to try to counter some of that misinformation with reality and, you know, agriculturally accurate messages.
0: Um, do you know of something called Ag in the Classroom?
1: I do and work with them quite often. I have four books out now and, and a lot of them are used in Ag in the Classroom programs. And so that's, that's really rewarding for me. And it, uh, yeah, people can check out their website and they have free resources and lesson plans that are available You can do them with your kids at home or if you're a teacher, uh, they're available uh, there as well. And you can also go to uh, American Farm Bureau Federation and they have a list of agriculturally accurate resources. Uh, mine are all on there and endorsed by the Farm Bureau. Uh, but you can learn about honeybees or uh, you know, raising watermelons or whatever it is that you might be interested in. There are agriculturally accurate children's books and lesson plans that are available there as well. So it's pretty fun. Um
0: good. And yes, I noticed that you, you know, you have these stylish garments that you sell as well. <laughs>
1: I had to wear a beef one for today because I knew that would appeal to your audience. But yes, I sell hoodies and t-shirts that are farm and ranch themed or beef themed and uh, kind of attracts like-minded people to wear their passions on their, on their sleeve or on their shirt, I guess. And it's, I found when I wear these in airports or when I'm traveling around the country, uh, they really become conversation starters. And people, oh, what's up with your shirt? And then I can talk about you know the things that I'm passionate about, and and so it's kind of an icebreaker in a way. So, plus this pandemic, everyone wants to wear loungewear now. So I I got plenty That's of right. that. <laughs> That's right.
0: Um, so yeah, there's whole new categories of clothes apparently that
1: yes. I, yes. I,
0: <laughs> I don't pay much attention, as people will know. Um, jumping back a little bit, um, what, um, you're talking about, what, um, seven years ago or so, what was the information that you became aware of to, to adopt a new way of eating? What, how did you learn of this to, to even start? to to consider it.
1: Yeah. Well, I had tried about every diet under the sun. I was constantly researching, trying something, failing, regaining the weight that I tried so hard to lose, counting calories, working out twice a day, just never getting anywhere in my weight loss goals and always feeling terrible and hungry. Uh, And I kind of stumbled upon, uh, you know, low carb and Atkins. And pretty soon I found a forum called zeroing in on health where people were literally just eating meat like weirdos, <laughs> and I mm. thought, "Well, oh, this is too, this is crazy. This is too extreme." And mm. I had so many insecurities, and I was so tied to, "Oh, I gotta count my calories." And they said, "No, Amanda, you don't. You just need to feed your body and feed it well." And right now, because you've been dieting for. First, you know, the last decade of your life, your body is malnourished and hungry, even if you're overweight. And so, I had to almost fight my brain and say, "Okay, I give my myself permission to eat and eat well." And I had to just let go of the scale and those those fears that I had of being weight. And I literally just had to eat meat. And heal. And it, and it worked. Uh, so again, yeah, my buddies, Charles Washington, Kelly Hogan, and, and just those crew that had been already doing it for a couple of years really walked me through it. And they really welcomed me because I was the only cowboy or cowgirl on the forum at the time. And so I was kind of the novelty, the master. Got, if you will, <laughs> yeah, to answer yeah. the, the beef production questions and yeah, they really walked me through it and it did take several years for it to stick, really stick, you know, so people think, oh, I try it and I fail or I fall off the wagon um, and then they think it's over and you know, I just kept getting back on the horse until it finally made sense and you know, sometimes I think people have to hit rock bottom before they're willing to do something. Mm that for the rest of society seems extreme. Uh, but now that I've been in it for so long and built my family thanks to it, like I said, it it's second nature. You don't think about it. You just eat the food that feels good and you go about your day. And it's really easy. So I, yeah. I'm very grateful that I had to learn it the hard way, but I'm grateful I found it when I did.
0: Yeah. Well, there, there was a fair amount of um, other messaging that had been you know given to you so it's it's entirely understandable um mm-hmm. the i'm i'm aware of some conservation efforts that are underway uh, south dakota uh, maybe it's just because what you watch then youtube start serving you more of. Um, but the, the the South Dakota grasslands, the NRCS South Dakota, there's a number of nice, well-done, relatively short videos of uh, people involved in conservation and, and grass farming. Um wow. Are there any organizations that, for somebody who's not in agriculture but would like to learn about what's going on in terms of conservation, that you would direct them to?
1: Yeah. So with the Soil Quilt, I got to work with the South Dakota Soil Health Coalition, and they were fantastic, have a ton of great resources. Another thing that's really cool is the Leopold Award. So if people just search Leopold, they can see incredible videos of um, range managers, land managers, you know, farming and ranching families that just do it right. Whether it's planting trees or planting cover crops or converting, you know, land back to grass or putting in pipeline for water so that they can improve their rotational grazing or, uh, one group that I, I wrote about a, a farm that was nominated for this award—they really focused on um, the the sage land. Is it grouse? I can't remember now. Sage grouse. Yeah. Yeah. yes, you know what I'm talking. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about—a bird that's endangered or that what? Yeah, was on the list. Yeah, sage grouse. Um, and so they were working on specifically the habitat there to improve and encourage those birds to kind of come back. So there's some really cool YouTube videos out there that people can see real agricultural families out doing, you know, the work of, of improving the land. And I, always, I would also encourage people to Google um, cattle grazing on cover crops because if they can ever see a cow eating a big turnip, out of a, of a field, it's something to see with their mouth is just full with this ginormous turnip and they, and that's what we plant on our, our ranch. So the cover crops are, you know, radishes, turnips, uh, alfalfa, oats, uh, a different mix of things. And it's, it's really neat to see. And, uh, yeah, the cows really love it.
0: So, yeah, we, we haven't talked much about the ranch. I mean, what, what is it? livestock only is it crop livestock uh, size that that's sort of
1: sure um i see the sun's really coming in hard today which is good because it's negative 10 degrees out so maybe it'll warm up (laughs) Uh, no (laughs) <laughs> uh, we, we raise just enough crops to feed the cattle. Uh, we focus on alternative crops. So oats, alfalfa, sedan grass, cover crops. Uh, we put up a lot of hay, uh, occasionally corn. It just depends on if it's cheaper to buy it or to grow it. Um, and so we try to have a lot of grazing crops and crops that we can put up for, for bales for the winter months. Uh, so I'd say that makes us maybe a little unique for, compared to all the traditional crop farmers in the area, um, but yeah, everything kind of centers back to to the livestock, the cattle, and and the feed we'll need through you know the winter months. So I think that's one thing on the grass fed discussion is people assume that the cattle are just fed grass year round, and it can also be hay in the winter months mm-hmm. because in South Dakota there's not a blade of grass to be eaten right now. <laughs> yeah so, I
0: mean uh, we can do some things to extend the grazing season but yeah. there's nature has a limit yeah. depending on where yeah. you are. And so I will are m-
1: on Christmas we're eating corn stalks so as long as there's not snow on the ground they can go out and graze in the cornfield and and you know find some forage to eat and it's good exercise for them and you know they're they're fertilizing those cornfields and, and adding nutrients back to the soil. And and yeah, then we don't have to feed so much hay during the winter months. So it's always a win if it can be Christmas day and you're not feeding hay bales.
0: Okay. Um, <laughs> that, that's a new metric for me. Um, yeah. How much of the land is potentially arable as opposed to land that ought to not be tilled you know half or a third or
1: um us it's probably about 50 50 that it could be it could be crops it I mean it is but it's it's focused on that that grazer mm-hmm. crop type crop and and having uh so we won't plow it up you know if my dad plants oats or sedan grass we'll We'll harvest it, but we'll leave that stubble. And then it, you know, kind of becomes that cover to reduce erosion. Uh, it also kind of becomes a cover for the cattle to to lay on as well. And so it doesn't look as neat and tidy as the neighbors that, you know, go from harvest to plowing. Uh, but we see a true benefit to, <laughs> yeah. to leave that cover on the ground as much as we can.
0: Yeah, v- vanity farming. Um, yeah, we, uh,
1: we're we We want
0: it to be tidy. Um, But one of the reasons for doing those forage crops, we'll Mm -hmm. call it, is because they fill holes in the production calendar of the grass that you have as as a base Mm -hmm. on the rest of the farm. So Mm -hmm. grass, unfortunately, doesn't grow at the same rate year round. And mm-hmm. depending on which grasses, some grow better in the summer, some grow better in the spring and maybe a little in the fall. And, and then we've got fall and early spring or late winter or however you want to look at it, that if we had a stockpile of feed, then animals could still graze that before, as you mm-hmm. say, we have to start hauling hay out of storage and feed it to the animals. Yeah. Um, and then at some point you have to worry about where your animals are in order for them to have shelter in the winter time. Yeah. There may be feed there, but there may be no shelter and that's not a good combination.
1: Yeah. And yeah, we could get really nerdy on all of those different uh ideas and, and and different tactics that people do. So one thing that some people do if, if they're set up for it or they have a more temperate winter is they'll just do bale grazing where they spread them all out you know, on a big field or pasture and maybe they use an electric fence and those cows will just kind of move from bale to bale and then they're never having to start the tractor. They're just having to move a fence from time to time. Uh, we have pretty brutal winters and so the cows stay pretty close and so a big concern for us is number one reducing hay waste with you know different types of feeders and two trying to move those feeders around strategically uh, so we don't have them trampling you know certain spots of the field super heavily Uh, and so once they go off to pasture then we, we can either plant some crops in there or we can you know haul the manure elsewhere and kind of get it back to square one and and so yeah there's different schools of thought and there's no one size fits all for every single uh farmer ranch it really has to match the environment uh your labor your equipment uh the grasses you have available um and yeah we could talk cool season and warm season grasses and all of those things but uh yeah what works for me probably doesn't even work for a guy two hours down the road and, and no. so yeah we, yeah it's, uh, it's uh, interesting
0: well and that's part of the complexity of these systems and they really are systems and um, we we don't again it's part of telling our story um not everyone needs to know all the details but if people had an appreciation for all that goes into why you do what you do they Mm -hmm. might be a little less likely to say you know i judge that this way or that way and um i have concerns about people who start using the word ethical um around food systems um one principal reason is because if you disagree with someone that means they're not ethical um mm-hmm. by your definition and that's just a non-starter for me that's hard yeah. so i've i've been asking you a lot of questions and i appreciate your time and i it's only fair to give you the chance to ask me any if you have them. Um, I appreciate any suggestions that you have for um, people to commu- to contact about guests in the future.
1: Yeah, uh, one thing I'd like to ask, because I, I think you do such an incredible job of floating from different, you know, segments and groups, is what could you know, the ranching community do more of to connect with like the keto, carnivore, low-carb, you know, health-conscious uh, groups? And and obviously, it's maybe outside of traditional methods that we have to look at doing those things.
0: Good question and a big interest of mine. Um, yeah. I, I think... Uh, there, there are sort of a couple ways to attack this. One is for individuals to learn and maybe, if necessary, have their own personal experience. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that could drive it from the bottom up, if you will, mm-hmm. um, in terms of organizations or, or what have you. The other is for some of the organizations to find a way to add this into their programs. Mm-hmm. So to increase awareness, and, and there are thoughts that I have that, but uh, without getting too much into those details, if, if we could have both of those efforts, then people are going to discover all these communities that already exist and are communicating well, mm-hmm. I think, um, they're going to discover the resources. And like I say, if necessary, individuals can have their own health journey. Um, and then that can help spread the message. Mm-hmm. I think we get to a certain level and we're just hitting institutional inertia. Um, yeah. and, and some of that, we may live long enough to see that be overcome. We... Okay. Uh, but the other, the other point is just, if we get enough people aware, then we reach this tipping point
1: mm-hmm. where it doesn't
0: matter anymore. It's, it's, yeah. it's, um, and, and I think the market will respond to that tipping point. I think mm-hmm. it already has, maybe wow. not always in ways that I would think are helpful, but <laughs> over time, I think that this will just multiply. So, uh, personal experience and then find those organizations that can do this Mm -hmm. um i know that some of the organizations that have served agriculture well are constrained by the very thing that we talked about earlier Mm -hmm. and and so um but as i was speaking earlier with a gentleman who um he gave me the idea that if individuals went to their local county extension offices and started asking about what was being offered and then the revolutionary idea was to volunteer to be on their advisory committees yeah that might again be another voice um, mm-hmm. And again, within Extension, at least traditionally, they were to be a voice from the community to the land-grant institutions. Yeah, and That might force a conversation that currently is not going to come from the land-grant university down for no. the very reasons that we talked about before.
1: Yeah, that I mean, that kind of goes hand in hand with what i've been telling people after you know this political us election and just every all the uncertainty you know everyone's so focused on what's going on in washington dc that I want to remind people we can make the most impact if we focus on what's going on in our own communities, leading by example. So whether it's, you know, partnering up with ranches to get more high quality beef in the school lunch program, you know, on a local level, whether it's putting on little forums for your, you know, in your local community through, yeah, 4-H extension or, or other avenues you might have available to you. Uh, people are always looking for a uh, a speaker at their, you know, local club meetings, whatever they might be, uh, sharing your personal testimonies, you know, nothing's more powerful uh, than your story. And so, yeah, we have some great agricultural organizations that are out there doing the work for us. Um, But the real power comes from our individual stories and our collective experiences and really just um, finding people to share those those values and, and those lessons with and, and just letting it resonate from there.
0: You know, your, your quote about, uh, we all care about the same things, mm-hmm. whether yeah. we're producer or consumer. We have different perceptions of those because of our experience. And if we could yeah. somehow find a way to meet each other, to listen to each other, to learn from each other. I think we could make progress. And the thing that unites all of us at this point is everybody eats and the Mm -hmm. statistics are so bad that metabolic illness is a reality for most adult Americans. Mm -hmm. And if we could, find a way to have a conversation around that, then maybe some of these other messages would lose their traction and lose their audience. Um, And and we could make some real progress in what I'm convinced is the unsustainable crisis.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's been my whole frustration with this pandemic because we've heard, you know, wear your mask and social distancing, but we've never heard Let's address the metabolic diseases or illnesses that people are suffering from. Let's make us a society as healthy as we can. And what does that look like? You know, getting fresh air and sunshine, drinking water, eating healthfully. And what does eating healthfully look like? Trying to take care of yourself is well as you can, and so that you have a strong you know uh, immune system and a strong healthy body to ward off illness you know in a pandemic or otherwise. And that's what I feel, feel has been largely lacking from, you know the medical community when we're focusing on, you know reducing the spread, but not let's strengthening the health of society. A good example of this is in China. Uh, they are encouraging parents to give their kids dairy four times a day to increase you know, their dairy consumption. Uh, and you know, here in the United States, you are like, oh, not dairy. Go for the oat milk or you know, whatever it might be. So it's a totally different messaging. And it's really, I think, doing a disservice to the American people to not have that health information in front of them to see, hey, I could drastically improve my chances of warding off a novel virus. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm the healthiest I can be. And here's mm-hmm. the secret to it all that's kind of been suppressed all this time. Hmm.
0: Well, we could go on and on
1: that and perhaps- I didn't even mean to get on, so sorry. <laughs> that's, that's
0: fine. There's plenty of room up here on this soapbox. Um, but perhaps we ought to schedule another time to come back or, or uh, have another conversation at a later date. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you sharing your experience as well as your perspective. And if there's anything I can do to help you in what you're doing, please don't hesitate to ask.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. And hopefully one day down the road, we actually get to meet at a real life conference, whether it's uh, carnivorous or agricultural or one or both. Uh, Maybe maybe both.
0: both. I think there needs to be a low carb Brookings or um, (laughs) a low carb (laughs) Mitchell. We could have it at the Corn (laughs) Palace. That would be awesome.
1: Come on, come off. They can come out to grill steaks at my house and then go to the conference during the day. So Excellent.
0: <laughs> thank you so much.
1: Yes, yeah, thank you.